Welcome to the Content Strategy Experts Podcast brought to you by Scriptorium. Since 1997, Scriptorium has helped companies manage, structure, organize, and distribute content in an efficient way. In this episode, we talk with Stephanie Clark of Jorsec about using a scaled approach with data projects. Hi, everyone. I'm Bill Swallow. And hi, I'm Stephanie Clark. And uh, we're going to talk a bit about uh, a scaled approach to data projects. Uh, so, Stephanie, um, what would you say is the best way to get started with a data project uh, without a huge investment up front? Well, I think there are lots of ways that you can get started with a data project without a huge investment up front. And I think there's kind of a misconception that data is for these large enterprises. And if you're anything smaller than that, then you probably can't benefit from it. Um, but the benefits are there regardless of what size organization. It's just deciding how you're going to invest um, if you wanted to move into a DITA environment. And so I think one thing to understand is that there's, there's always some investment, but I think that there is an opportunity to decide if that investment is going to be purely monetary um, or if you want to invest some time. And there's a lot of ways now to get started with DITA uh, without you know, the monetary investment that you can use best practices you know, reasonable tools, approaches to content conversion or publishing, um, self-education, you know, there's a lot of resources out there. Um, and so I think, you know, that's something that I want to kind of explore a little more in our conversation today is, you know, what, what can an organization do if they don't want to go um, lay out a lot of money to implement data? Um, so we can kind of look at each of these items, I guess, but what are, what are your thoughts on the best way to overall get started. Well, you mentioned that right off the bat that regardless of what your approach is going to be, there's still going to be a cost associated with it. Do you want to speak a little bit to that? Yeah. So let's look at maybe an example, which would be looking at content conversion. So oftentimes when you're implementing data, one of the first steps that you have to take is looking at how are you going to move your content into the data structure and get it into a data environment. And a lot of companies will do like an engineered conversion. And that's great. I mean, those come out really well typically. It's engineered to your needs and your information model. And that's all fantastic. Um, however, <laughs> doing an engineered conversion can cost quite a bit of money. Um, and some organizations, you know, look at that and see that as an immediate barrier to moving into data. But I think, you know, if you look at kind of that trade-off, it's going to cost something. It's either time or money. Um, you can look at easier do-it-yourself approaches, whether that's using a more generic conversion and doing the cleanup, um, or even I've seen companies with smaller sets of content do a lot of copying and pasting um, to move into a data environment. So I think that would be maybe an example of, you know, you don't have to go spend $10,000 on conversion or more. You could you know, spend the hours to get the content cleaned up and in really good shape and get the same result. Right. So there, there's a mindfulness there between monetary budget and I guess, uh, you know, time budget and uh, the amount of resources you have available to get things done. Yeah, you do have to have, you know, the resources. If you don't want to spend the money, you need to take into account the time that, that your team or yourself are going to probably spend um, on some of the data implementation. But once you, once you get rid of, I think, that like huge price tag that some people see and get, get scared away by, 
you know, and you look at it and kind of plan it, I think that that can be a really good approach for smaller teams or smaller organizations that want to start making that move. Mm-hmm. So speaking of price tags, um, a lot of the tools out there generally come with uh, some degree of sticker shock when you start looking at enterprise content management systems and so forth. Do you have thoughts around those? Yeah, I think that is one of the big barriers as well. And one of the reasons a lot of organizations maybe don't adopt data and decide, hey, we're going to use these desktop publishing tools that are already available, or I can produce a PDF out of Word. I don't need um, you know, this more elaborate system. And so I think it depends on what system you're looking for. Like the desktop publishing and single user tools are always going to have a much lower price tag than like a data CCMS will. Um, but there's, you know, the trade-off of what you're getting. But I will say, I don't, I don't want to make this too much about my organization, but one thing we've done at Dorsic is we just introduced this year um, some really low, low-tier um, options so people can get started for as little as $15 a month in a data CCMS. So there are tools out there that don't have a six-figure price tag um, that make it a lot more accessible to people. And I'm sure there's others out there as well that have you know, options that are available at, at kind of a lower price point. Mm-hmm. And certainly there's, there's always the option to use, to, you know, to really go bare, bare metal and uh, use a, a source repository such as Git or something like that to at least get yourself started. Absolutely. And a lot of organizations are doing that. We've seen, you know, we're a data CCMS. We've seen a lot of prospects coming to us that are already in data, got themselves started completely on their own using Oxygen plus Git. And then maybe in a few years you decide, hey, we could probably benefit from a content management system um, and it might make more sense at that point. So we talked about tools, we talked about uh, content conversion. What about the publishing side? Yeah, so I think publishing is another one of those kind of barriers to entry for data. Um, and that is because most data publishing is done using the Data Open Toolkit, which is an open source publishing engine. It gives you a ton of options. You can publish to any number of different formats. But the kind of caveat there is that there's usually some initial setup required. So you have to develop a publishing plugin to apply your styling and all of your rules for how you want the output to look. The bonus of that is that later on you have consistent output, but the the barrier is that, yes, there's an upfront investment, whether, again, whether it's time or money, um, if you're doing it yourself or paying someone to develop it. And so you have to look at how you can, how you can do that at a reasonable budget. Um, but one thing I'll say is that data publishing, what I've seen, and, and Bill, maybe you've, you've seen this as well, is that there's a lot of open source options available to start from. And that I'm seeing more options available that aren't just data open toolkit that are maybe easier for people to use. Have you seen the same thing in the industry, Bill? Um, I've started seeing, yeah, some of these, I, I would say more polished uh, starting points uh, popping up there. I mean, the open toolkit is great uh, in that it gives you some initial uh, publishing targets that you can configure, but the, the, the catch is that you have to be able to configure them. So, you know, if you're doing PDF, you have to know uh, FO or you have to know uh, cascading style sheets for, for print or for PDF. Uh, you need to be able to develop cascading style sheets for HTML. But a lot of, um, a lot of tools start coming with um, some bare bones ones with uh, some 
more, I don't want to call them visual editors, but they're a good starting point for being able to lay out you know, your, your output uh, format and then be able to tweak things from there by going into the CSS and, and fixing things. Uh, so there are some options that are, that are starting to creep out there, but they, they do still require a bit, of, a bit of tweaking to get it just right, uh, even if it's just a matter of changing colors and fonts and dropping a logo in. You know, it takes a, a little bit of time to get up and running, but certainly not as much as trying to configure a, a bare-bones OT plugin on your own. Yeah, I think you make a, a good point that not everyone has the skill sets to do it, um, and so it is it is important to know that there are some good tools available out there that don't require you know that advanced level of skill set that even you know the average person could probably get in and, and do some basic CSS work. Um, we've started using Prince XML um, somewhat, which is CSS for PDF, and mm -hmm. I know nothing about CSS, <laughs> and yet I can somehow manage to go in there and still like change colors and drop a logo and make it look pretty. So um, it's a lower entry point, I think, than than maybe some of the traditional Ditto OT publishing options might be. Absolutely. So with regard to getting started, a lot of companies seem to think that it's it's going to be a massive undertaking to get things rolling within a company. I know that we've we've seen a lot of companies start doing a more of a proof of concept on that end uh, to kind of get the ball rolling. And I was wondering if you've seen that as well and uh, what types of, I guess, startup projects you, you see people implementing. Yeah, we have seen a, a lot of POCs too. And I think a, a proof of concept or POC is a really fantastic way to get started. It helps you build your business case. It helps you validate any you know assumptions or ideas that you have. Um, and you can make it really focused around you know your core goals for maybe why you're moving into data. So we have a few different you know kind of POC options that we that we provide. So we have like a two books like you want to look at reuse, and so you just get two pieces of content that are similar in the system um, and start working on it to see how much you can reuse, how much easier it is to author and maintain, um, and kind of prove out the points that you want to see. So. I love a POC because it's a great way to prove that a solution will work for you before you make um, any larger investments in it. Um, what do you typically see with uh, POCs that you guys have been working on? Well, a lot of times we do see companies start looking at at least producing one complete deliverable of some kind. Uh, so they don't go headfirst into converting everything over and, and focusing on making sure that everything is hooked up and working properly before they start outputting content. So they'll pick a pet project usually. So if there's a, a product development initiative going, especially if there's a brand new product that's coming out, usually they'll align their proof of concept to that. This way they're not dealing with legacy content so they, they don't have to deal with conversion as much and they can get in and start authoring the correct way for Ditta in the tools for their you know, proof of concept and be able to design the primary, and, and when I say primary, I mean one transform or publishing target uh, for that particular deliverable. And most of the times we see that usually being some flavor of HTML. Uh, this way it can be either served up on the web or 
uh, provided in a lighter format with a product uh, or or uh, what have you. But the key there is to not focus again on on everything. Uh, if your proof of concept requires you to convert thousands of topics or thousands of documents or thousands of pages of content into data first, that's going to delay getting that proof of concept out in front of people who need to see it to approve a larger investment. So we, we usually try to uh, help companies identify a small manageable target that they can hit within a reasonable time frame. Yeah, I like that approach of, of starting from scratch and having a small reasonable um, project. I've also seen with POCs, one of the things I like about it is it's a really good opportunity for at least like a core team of, of users to kind of gain experience with Ditta, with the tools that they're going to use and maybe learn some lessons early on in a low risk environment, um, as opposed to trying to do like a full fledged implementation where there's a lot more risk involved if you start making any, any mistakes or you have those learning, learning points along the way. Absolutely. And it, that actually brings up another good point, and that's to not try to inject too many bells and whistles into the design of your content up front. And by that, I mean uh, introducing heavy amounts of data specialization, you know, which is a customization of the model, or using a lot of what I would say more advanced features because usually those require a bit more thought and a bit more setup before you can truly begin authoring your content. Things like using uh, keys to, to change uh, the context of your content and using a lot of conditional processing. I would shy away from using too much and focus on one goal. Uh, if that goal is to produce, you know, as you mentioned, two different manuals for a particular set of content, then focus only on that and using those conditions and not all the other bells and whistles that you might be able to you know, use. Keep everything in mind that you want to use going forward, but focus on the key elements that are going to show the people who really will allow you to grow your implementation that, hey, this thing is going to work for us. Yeah, I think that's really great advice, um, and it gets you started thinking about how your larger implementation might look and work and what you want to do. But again, you know, keeping it focused for the POC on, on you know, some simple goals. Um, you kind of brought up one other point, though, Bill, which is, you know, when you're getting into Dita, there's all of these options. You know, you can customize it to anything that you want it to be, really. What do you suggest for people that are just starting to kind of learn about Dita in terms of resources to educate themselves on some of these options? That's a good question. Um, actually, we do have learningdita.com, uh, which is available. Uh, if you head over there, it's a 100% it's a free resource for learning about Dita. Up there, I believe there are close to, I don't know, maybe 10 or so courses that you can take. And there are also several recordings available from past Learning Data conferences. Uh, we do an online conference every, every um, February. That's a great way to get started and get learning about it. The other thing that I think is really important is to start taking into account everything you might need going forward uh, even if you do have that data expertise, taking a strong look at your content and start thinking about how all the bits and pieces 
need to be able to work in this new environment because the goal of, of really moving to Dita is not so much changing tools and changing you know the format in which you're authoring. It's changing everything about how you're authoring in order to deliver something better and to produce something faster. So look at where the inefficiencies are and start thinking about how you want to resolve those or at least identifying what you want to resolve before moving forward because the last thing you want to do when you have an investment in changing tools regardless if you're going to Dita or anything else is reinventing the same problems in a new tool set. Yeah, I think that's a great starting point. I recommend learning Dita to a lot of people and that's how I got started in Dita surprisingly enough was through your training courses. So, great. <laughs> Glad to hear it's working. <laughs> Um, and for someone that's just starting to look at like developing a content strategy or what they may or may not need um, that Dita has to offer, do you have any suggestions for them to get started? Well, of course, the default answer is please contact us. But uh, no, <laughs> um, the best way the best way to go about this is is again to look at your content and also understand what the best practices are for authoring in Dita. Generally, you want to keep things topic-oriented and you want to identify your reusable pieces of information and make sure that you are separating those. And generally, you want to do an audit over your entire content set and figure out you know, what needs to be moved over and why it needs to be moved over and which pieces are going to be reused and how and kind of getting your arms around everything that you had in your content before and what you wish you could have done better with it. Because chances are there's a mechanism in Dita that will allow you to do something better with that content. Yeah, that's a great point. And I would, I would just maybe double down on if you're doing it yourself. I mean, if you're not using a, a experienced content strategist like Graporium folks, always, I would say always follow best practices, you know, don't get too carried away, try and be a little minimalist in, you know, doing just what you need to meet your goals, um, and use the best practices for the industry. And there's a lot of resources available, whether it's Dita forums or, or other options. Absolutely. I mean, Dita affords you a lot of bells and whistles to do some really smart and interesting things with your content, but you have to be mindful to not try to use them all. Yes. <laughs> you use them all, it can get a little confusing and complicated quite easily. So, Absolutely. All right. All right. Well, thank you, Stephanie. I think this has been a great little talk. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Bill. Always nice chatting with you. And you. And thank you for listening to the Content Strategy Experts podcast brought to you by Scriptorium. For more information, visit scriptorium.com or check the show notes for relevant links. Mm -hmm.